Hello and welcome to episode four of Rank Up, a monthly on-page SEO podcast where we talk about technical SEO, content optimization, search engine news, and much more. I'm one of your hosts, Ben Gary, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, Ed Wilson. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you, Ben. Uh, had a productive week so far. Um, yeah, achieved quite a lot. So um, yeah, just really excited to get this going um, and recording this episode. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm looking forward to the bank holiday weekend, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah definitely. But, but yeah, like you said, it's, it's, been a, it's been a decent week so far. It's been fairly productive. So uh, that's, that's quite a nice way to lead into a longer weekend, I think. 100%. And we are also joined by our special guest for this month, Chloe Fair. How are you, Chloe? I'm really good, thank you. Looking forward to this. Hate the sound of my own voice. I probably won't listen to it back, but I hope everyone else enjoys it. Well, the advantage of being on the podcast is you don't need to listen to it because you've already got all the information anyway. Exactly. Everyone else can listen to it instead. I know. I, I have had to become a lot more used to listening to my own voice just since doing this, and I don't even edit it. Yeah. I think I am, yeah, like, because I'm... Yeah, because I edit the episodes, I feel like I'm accustomed to my own voice now. So it's not a, such a shock, shock, because you always think for the first time when you haven't heard it in a while, like, Jesus, do I really sound like that? And then uh, fortunately, yeah, yeah I, I just I'm used to hearing my voice quite a lot now after running through the editing process. I, d I don't think anyone, I, I don't think anyone ever loves the sound of their own voice. And everyone always sounds different to what they think they are. That, that's what they think they sound like. Which, yeah, yeah I, I don't think know. I sound less annoying, but definitely not. So, <laughs> you don't sound annoying, Chloe. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that you're on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are, uh, I'll just say quickly, we are still in lockdown. I know we've, we've said this for the last couple of episodes. So, um, hopefully, the recording quality is going to be all right. Um, we think we've got a reasonable setup going now with the Google Hangouts recording. Um, but please bear with us um, if there are any quality glitches along the way. We're doing our best um, to deliver you the best quality possible throughout this period. Um, but otherwise, um, we will we'll crack on with the episode because we've got loads to get through today. Um, it's going to be slightly different to some of our previous ones as Chloe has got not one but two main topics to talk about. So we're going to cut out some of the um, other kind of sections that we do around the end of the podcast and make sure that we can focus on um, those topics that Chloe wants to bring to us. Um, and it makes sense, I think, to uh, ask you a bit about yourself first, Chloe, um, and hear a bit about who you are um, and how you've got to where you are at Impression so far. Yeah, cool. Um, so I'm an SEO strategist at Impression. I've been here for, um, it will be four years in August. Um, and before that, I had a couple of years experience working for an international travel company, Flixbus, in Munich in Germany. Um, I learned SEO in German, nice. <laughs> which was interesting. Um, it, it took a few weeks. I think Ed and Pete were the two people that told me that I was saying, like, meter instead of meta description. <laughs> <laughs> Things like this pretty bad my old boss just didn't obviously know because she taught me <laughs> but yeah so um 
got some really good like international experience there yeah. um, where I assisted in the rollout of about 20 domains um, and helped their kind of market entry to the UK and then carried on working for them during my final year of my German and philosophy degree yeah. um, and then came to Impression. So at Impression, my role is um, fairly strategic. Um, where I've, although the past kind of couple of months, it's been obviously all hands on deck um, with helping clients during kind of this time. So I have been doing a lot more kind of um, actual content work as well. But prior to that, it was more strategic, um, like looking at kind of international strategies um, and doing things like that. So I, I kind of have been, I've been developing our international SEO offering at Impression. Um, and that's something that I guess is, it's not a specialism yet, but it's definitely becoming one for me. Um, but mostly it is e-commerce that I deal with. So I work yeah. with a lot of our e-commerce clients. Um, and yeah, I've worked, I guess, closely with both Ben and Ed on these clients um, to kind of improve their organic performance in a lot of industries, um, some more exciting than others, but all kind of different challenges, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. Yes, as you sort of alluded to there, um, international SEO and e-commerce will be our two main topics. Um, and before we get before we get into that properly, I was just wondering, is there anything in particular that has drawn you to those or, or has it just sort of been where you've landed through your client experience and sort of natural progression so far? Um, so with the international side of things, um, I definitely think it's an interest of mine. Um, mm. I've, I've learned a language. I'm kind of learning other languages on the, the side um, as well <laughs> unintentionally. <laughs> as you go. As I go, um, and I do have a real kind of big interest into different cultures mm. and then kind of transferring that to marketing, like how that um, translates into a, into the user experience. Um, and that's something that really in interests me. Um, not only that, but I think as well, like the whole search engine side of things um, mm. is just, there's so much to go at there. That's not something that I think I'll be um, an expert on anytime soon, but at least understanding how users do search in different markets. Um, yeah. And there are some patterns um, but it also requires a lot more research. And then with e-commerce, I think e-commerce is just like really exciting. Um, and I think there's a lot, like, I find there's a lot more challenges um, right. that require maybe more of like a, a unique strategy, not that, you know, kind of lead gen strategies are all templated, but I just think with e-commerce, user intent, search intent, demand changes so much more than lead gen. Yeah. Um, and that's why I really enjoy enjoy that. Yeah, I mean, we, we were chatting a little bit about lead gen and e-commerce beforehand. And in my experience working on more lead gen, it all kind of it's all just a scale of informational content, really. I mean, there are some more commercially focused terms um, and certainly less commercially focused terms. But ultimately, a service page often still needs a fair bit of content and explanation and you're supporting it with blogs and guides and all sorts of other things. And it's kind of just a scale of information. Whereas e-commerce, you can have completely different things and completely different considerations going on on one site. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. 100%. We will come on to all of that good stuff shortly. I don't want to jump the gun too much um, <laughs> because one of our team members, uh, Helen, has made sure that I ask Chloe a question that Helen has been on at me to ask our guests since we started the podcast. Um, and this time she went over my head and just told Chloe that Chloe had to answer the question. So I can't get out of it. 
Um, but we're going to do it for Chloe here as an icebreaker. And Ed, feel free to answer as well. Um, I, I may chip in too because I think I have a different answer to you on some of these. Um, but Helen wants us to do a little bit of a digital marketing snog, marry and avoid. Um, so I've got two here for us. Uh, and the first one is going to be um, traffic channels. These are the, the good topics that we love to discuss as digital marketers. So the first one, snog, marry, and, snog, marry or avoid, if I can even say it properly, uh, organic traffic, direct traffic and referral traffic. Chloe, you can go first. God, we're such nerds, aren't we? I know. I can't believe we found this. Fun, this I'm, really I'm so excited about this. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear your answers, though, because I think this might lead to a bit of a debate. Okay, for me, this is really easy. Like, I literally don't even have to think twice about this. So, snog, direct, marry organic, and avoid referral. Okay. What are, what are you, Ed? Before Let's do our answers before we discuss it. <laughs> Uh, I would marry direct because I feel like direct um, is pretty much maybe branded traffic. Um, uh -huh. So you think brand first. Uh, marry uh, organic, um, obviously, to drive that performance and avoid referral due to the fact that it's normally lower converting. Therefore, I would like to avoid it. Okay, I'm going to be, I'm different to both of you. Uh, I'm going to say snog referral, marry organic, and avoid direct. So we all got different. We did, yeah. Okay, let's start with you, Chloe. Um, why? Remind me what your answer was again, and so give a bit of explanation for it. Okay, so snog. Um, so I did snog direct, marry organic, and avoid referral. Right. And I think I was thinking of it as more like the investment in it. So I feel like with direct, you're already there. So it's okay. like you just give it a snog and then they convert. You don't yeah. need to like actually nurture the relationships too much. Whereas for organic, as we know, it's a long-term investment <laughs> as a marriage is. Yeah. So I think not an investment. Marriage isn't an investment. It's a bit of a weird thing to say. But I think it I know what you depends, mean. I <laughs> who you marry. Um, but it's so it's definitely like more of a long-term thing and you have to be in it for the long game with organic yes um, see that that's where i agree with you because i was marry organic for the same reasons and partly because it's you know it's it's our long-term career so yeah. it feels like the closest <laughs> analogy there exactly and then referral i think oh, there's just so many there's so many tracking issues with referral i mean who's got time for that so I, I feel like I need to justify saying snogging referral, seeing as both of you said to avoid it. Um, yeah. My my thing with referral, maybe I was taking it one step back and I was thinking more about like sort of valuable traffic from other sources and specifically like well-built links. Because um, I think if you can sort of do mm. referral well and you can get good sources for that referral traffic, I think it can be a really strong channel uh, that might set you apart from some other people in the industry. Um, so I went for snogging that one and avoiding direct because I'm just like, yeah, you know, the, the direct traffic is there already. Kind of like what Ed said, but maybe I'm just doing it in a more negative light. <laughs> the direct traffic is there and we want to build the brand through organic and referral and the direct we can just sort of leave on its own. And also direct always steals a load of organic conversions if you look at conversion paths. So that's just not fun for reporting. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. See? Yeah. Whereas referral, that's not going to steal your conversions, is it? Because as Ed said, it doesn't really convert. <laughs> uh, should, we, should we do the second one as well, which is purely SEO focused? 
Um, yep. So at, at Impression, we historically have liked to talk about the three pillars of SEO, uh, technical SEO, content, and link building. So that's a nice fit with Snog, Marry, and Avoid. Which ones would you pick? Uh, Ed, you go first this time. Cool. I'll, uh, I'll list mine first and then I'll explain it afterwards, shall I? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so this may not shock many people. Murray technical, uh, <laughs> snug content, yeah. avoid links. Yeah. Chloe? I think if I'm being really honest, I do agree with Ed, I think. And I, I'm not far off, and I think it's going to be for similar reasons, but I would just swap technical and content around. So I would snug technical, marry content, and avoid links. <laughs> That's a, uh, uh, there's a consensus there. I don't know what that says about all of us that we're avoiding, <laughs> avoiding links, but I think we've all had experiences with link building in the past, but we're not keen to repeat. I think with my, the reason I chose that is because technically, from, yeah, from a technical perspective, you need that to be correct in order for a search engine to even access your website. So therefore sure. that needs a stable solution, stable being marriage. <laughs> um, <laughs> The snugging side of things is you really need that attractive content in order to convert users and also perform well in search engines. Yeah. Uh, the reason why I said to chose to avoid links is I think it's not that I are devaluing links in any way. Yeah. But ultimately, you're not going to be able to attract users if you don't have the content. Whereas you can build links if you create good enough content. Yeah. So for, therefore, I know it would be very. It's very, it's quite unlikely, but you are able to create a resource that may be visited on the web, and then then people then refer to that resource. So I feel like if you do create a good resource that may potentially be picked up, that acquired links uh, acquire links at a later date. However, I feel like the first two you couldn't even rank a website um, without them anyway. So I'd I'd choose those two over the the link side of things. You've managed to make quite a stupid icebreaker question sound actually quite thoughtful and reasonable. So <laughs> good job. I don't think it's a stupid question. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, hang I on, think, I'm not saying it's stupid. I completely agree. I think the reason that I sway towards technical over content, like marrying technical, is because you could write the best content in the world, but if you don't have the right architecture in place or yep. the right, like, it's just not going to work. So yeah, I think definitely um, that's all like, yeah, yeah. true, I think. I, to be honest, I don't disagree with any of that. I just put it the other way around because I much prefer working in content work than I do technical. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, ultimately, I think the way I'd put it was great. But uh, at, at impression, please, please don't take this as, uh, although all three of us said avoid links, that does not mean <laughs> we don't think links are important and we don't, and we don't like links at impression. Um, obviously, this was uh, this was a particular questions engineered in a particular way, um, and we would never advocate that a site just forget about links entirely. I don't think. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think that um, this could be quite a good blog post. Snog, marry, avoid. I think you'd have to do, you'd have to do a bit of a whip around the team though, because I think you have to get some different opinions. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, there'd definitely be different opinions. I don't think everyone would say avoid links, though, would they? That's just us. No, <laughs> no, they wouldn't. <laughs> but this is an on-page SEO podcast, so this is a safe place to say it. Yeah. Just don't go on Jess's Outspeech podcast and say it. <laughs> I think that would air. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> um, 
Shall we go to our top stories then uh, and move on to some of our other topics for the day? Yep. So top stories is our regular section that we wanted to keep here because there are always new things going on in the world of SEO. Um, so as we've done with every episode previously, the three of us have all picked an article that has jumped out at us over the last month. And we're going to uh, summarize them and discuss them and see what topics they lead us into today. So Ed, I think we've got you down first. Do you want to introduce your article? Yeah, I guess this trans transitions quite well from what we were just speaking about. So even though we did, try to, we did all avoided links, <laughs> my article is actually uh, on a business intelligent approach to link building. Um, this is uh, created by Cody West and it's hosted on the Traffic Think Tank website. So again, these uh, blog posts will be um, linked to in the show notes. So feel free to, well, actually highly recommend to go away and check this or well, these blog posts this one's in specific is quite detailed um i obviously won't read um all of it but i'll kind of pick out the interesting things that really yeah i thought spoke to me i think um just to kind of introduce it slightly i think when we're it's quite common for us when we're working with a client to understand what require what you know the requirements are for an seo strategy and mm. um, there are always questions of you know what is required to become successful in our competitive landscape and I think we always need to understand the requirement of do we need to actively have a link building strategy in place whether that be through digital PR or more kind of SEO focused link building I think within this blog post it puts a good case forward that you can present to a client where you look into the competitive landscape of your search and understand what other websites are doing and also uh, compare that against your own website I also feel like when we work on a new website or work with a new client you know we we spend time looking into their their link profile we analyze it against their competitors and i think you can normally quickly assume if link building is a requirement i mean correct me if i'm wrong but you can look in terms of the numbers you can look in terms of the publications they've been featured on you can look at the referring domain growth you can then analyze that against competitors and then from there you could have a you know a good guess of you know, if you feel like internal linking should be a requirement. Um, but this post, this post essentially goes into uh, documents that you can actually go away and create, which uh, takes into consideration uh, the quality of links, uh, the growth of your competitors in terms of referring domains, and also things such as like TrustFlow, which are created by uh, tools such as Majestic and things like that. But essentially, I think it creates a really great case study for um, a potential client or a new client where you need to identify if you know link link building is something that needs to be going out or actually you do have a lot of you know good value in place and therefore time is much better spent on yeah technical or content side of things mm. so with this approach which is quite um see quite un uh, numerical it sort of lays out quite clear almost targets for link building yes um, yes do you think that that is a viable strategy can it almost like link building by numbers can you be governed by something like this and achieve success sort of 90 95 percent of the time yeah i think that's yeah that is kind of where it is difficult because it's not to say that say for example you could build one link and then therefore that does drastically improve your organic visibility so mm. i don't obviously think that you should just refer to numbers as like in this spreadsheet th this website has achieved uh five websites which are domain rating 70 therefore we need to get six i just 
Yeah, I don't think it works like that. But I think it gives you a good estimation of we need to be in that ballpark. Um, you know, it needs to be that we need to be gaining coverage from similar types of websites with similar amounts of authority at a similar type of scale. Mm. Um, it may be that early on you do start to see visibility increase based on you trying to achieve those targets, or it may be that it's further down the line you actually have to scale it quite drastically. But I think it, it gives you a good guesstimation of if it's required and also initial targets that I know um i think we've you know that a lot of marketing directors or business owners initially asked for in terms of yeah. what needs to be the target and i think this helps with that and it actually adds a bit more data into the the discussion as well so i don't think yeah i don't think you need to be it, it doesn't need to go to the number level of saying yes we need x amount of x quality but at least it sets it out in terms of like i said a ballpark figure yeah that makes a lot of sense Chloe, with, with your clients that you've worked on in the past, are there things that you look for when um, kind of deciding to really pursue link building as a strategy? Are there any signs that that's what a website really needs or things that you'd want to put in place before you recommend something like that? Um, I think quite recently um, it's been like the local side of things for me on my accounts. Um, so when like I really noticed that they or they kind of one of the key KPIs is obviously ranking um, locally for a term. Yeah. <clears throat> then for that reason, I do think that like investing in links is really important, but that is more, I guess, like citation and yeah. local kind of links. I think really, and I'm going to be careful what I say here, <laughs> but <laughs> I do, link building is really important, but I'm quite fortunate with the brands I work with. They have a pretty good, PR or media and comms team sure um, and they'll get organic like coverage anyway and I'm a firm believer in like brand mentions as well adding quite a lot I think that's definitely I've seen like changes in search results when there's been a big kind of campaign from the communications team mm. and then it has actually changed the results but not a lot of links so okay. I think in that way um yeah I think it definitely it's, it's important to understand the search landscape, but I don't think, you know, to kind of outrank um, Wikipedia or Amazon, you need the highest domain rating. You need the biggest, yeah. best backlink profile. I don't think that's the case. I think relevancy is so important. Yeah. So I'd rather yeah. build like five links a year for my client of the highest quality um, and then yeah. keep everything else ticking over like with their media and comms team. Yeah, there's um, there's a good case study. I think it was a presentation actually, and it um, it was actually transfer wise. So quite a reputable business that have seen a lot of um, mm. digital success over the past few years. Um, and the head of organic there, I think it, that's the actual title. Um, he presented. They they did have an initial PR focus in the early years in terms of acquiring links, and yes, it did drive some value to the website in terms of. Um, organic performance, keyword growth, and things like that. Um, but then they transitioned on to focus on the product. So they introduced uh, a new CMS that produced, uh, that from a structural point of view, worked really well. It was able to create really uh, SEO-focused templates uh, in terms of pages, and it helped their content strategy in terms of the way they delivered content on pages as well. And they were able to scale this. And the, the the growth they saw from that, from an organic perspective, was just absolutely huge. And he wasn't critiquing 
um, link build in any way, but for them, it was a case of focus on their product because it was quite unique at the time. And actually the product itself and the brand were able to acquire uh, links in their own right. Exactly like Chloe said, they were able to get more brand oriented coverage. Whereas by focusing their in-house efforts on improving uh, the website structure, investing in good content across the website, this was able to, to drive growth. So I think it's just dependent on the business that you're, that you're in and yeah, the competitor that you're going against, there will always be a requirement thing they build in. But if yeah. you feel like, I think if your brand is able to generate links successful anyway, you may want to gear that towards more content objectives and yeah, um, and that side of things. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's fair. That was a really interesting article. Thanks for that one, Ed. Um, we'll move on to my one next, uh, which touches on or sort of introduces one of the bigger news stories from this month. Um, and I know that Chloe's article is going to go into more detail in a particular area of this as well. Uh, but that is, of course, the May 2020 core update for Google that we saw uh, back at the start of May. Um, so it's probably going to be a few weeks in the past by the time you hear this, but it's still uh, had a reasonably big impact on the industry. Uh, and one article that I found particularly interesting around the time that this algorithm update was launched is uh, an article by Dr. Pete Mayers of Moz, um, who he doesn't do articles loads and loads, but when he does, I, I try to sort of sit up and take notice because uh, I, I love the way that he sort of incorporates uh, a lot of data uh, and often really original research into the things that he writes. Um, and this one was no exception. Uh, the the title, somewhat provocatively, um, was named uh, Google's May 2020 core update, winners, winnerers, win losers, and why it's all probably crap. Um, which I'm gonna I'm gonna give him the kind of a bit of slack. It's slightly clickbaity, um, but it is fairly accurate for what he covers in the article. Um, and essentially, the main point that he's making is that a lot of snap judgments about an algorithm update are made maybe one, maybe two days after the algorithm has been launched and there can be quite a, a storm almost around a big website significantly rising in the in the rankings or losing rankings um, even if it's just sort of immediately after the algorithm update and the point that he makes is if you look at the fluctuations uh, following an algorithm update you can often see um, a lot of activity in the search results for uh, a lot longer after the update than a lot of these articles tend to highlight so um, he shows uh, as examples throughout this, this article, um, different sort of percentage changes in different websites over just the first and the second day. Uh, and he demonstrates that there are some sites that really uh, benefited on the first day that then uh, lose traffic again on the second day or lose rankings. Um, and he sort of shows a few examples to say that taking a single day snapshot is maybe not the best. Um, and the single biggest example of this that he gives uh, from the most recent update is LinkedIn, which on the second day lost 100% of its search visibility, um, which was later uh, realized that it was probably because they accidentally de-indexed their site around that time, um, rather than actually being hit by anything in the update because they then you know, recovered almost completely the following day. Um, so any sort of hysteria that might have been around uh, on that second day about the update smashing LinkedIn turned out to be unrelated. And when you look at a longer data set, you can see that that actually wasn't the case at all. And indeed, they did rise by 2% on the first day. Uh, he also raises some other points about saying there are some websites which just have a lot of fluctuation anyway. 
uh, and may have been going up and down even you know, long before the update. So if you took one of those websites as your benchmark immediately after the update, you would again be getting data that's probably not that reliable because actually they would have been fluctuating whatever was going on. Um, so what he ultimately advocates is um, comparing the seven-day mean before uh, the date where the fluctuations due to the update were really seen to start and then the seven days afterwards. And then by comparing that seven-day mean, you can see whether or not there seems to have been uh, a rise or a fall or, or any sort of change um, based on the overall sort of rankings before and after. Um, and he acknowledges that this still isn't perfect. Single-day anomalies like LinkedIn's de-indexing will still skew that data, and it will still look like LinkedIn has suffered in the update. Uh, but overall, you're smoothing out a lot of those random fluctuations and also um, the sort of you're smoothing out some of those major peaks and troughs that can happen immediately after an update. Um, so I just thought this was quite an interesting, uh, quite an interesting take on it and quite a well considered uh, piece that used a lot of data. Um, and I thought I'd raise it here along with the question um, more generally of as an agency, how, how and when do you kind of think that it's safe to go to a client and say, we think you have been affected by the algorithm update? Like, should you go as soon as you see something change or should you give it a bit longer, see how things play out? Uh, what, what's your sort of approach to working, whether or, working out whether or not your clients have been hit? Uh, who wants to go first? Um, I, I don't mind. I don't mind going while it's fresh in my head. Go for it. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is it. I've, I've said this quite a lot internally, but it does really depend on who your contact is at the at the client. So if you're working with an SEO, and um, for example, on some of my larger accounts, I'm working directly with an SEO. Mm. I will drop them an email on the day and say seen this tweet keeping an eye on it um yeah. and then just put it on their radar if you're dealing with like a cmo or an md you're not going to drop them an email and say that because it's probably going to make them flap a little bit yeah um, or they'll or they just won't really get anything out of it but i think it really comes back to understanding if you've learned something from the algorithm update if mm -hmm. you haven't learned anything then giving them a courtesy is fine if you have then feeding that into your strategy if you're not already so for mm. example with this recipe stuff which we'll talk about in a second on the account that it's accounts that's affected for me i knew it was an issue anyway but i was, so yeah. I was already working on it and now this has just been rolled out so it's like oh by the way that stuff we really wanted to do now we really need to do <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because um and that i think is really important so i'm not saying like if you're a good seo it'll already be, already be on your radar because that's not the case but i think you have to give yourself the benefit of the doubt like mm. if you are doing seo and you're kind of doing a holistic strategy and you know the site well don't just think because you know google says this is the, or, or someone in the industry says oh i think it's changed because of FAQ content. Don't just change your FAQ content. You have to really approach it with caution if you've already yeah. think it's okay. Um, that's the most important thing. I also find like so we use search metrics and like the um just looking at other sites on there around the time is yeah. so valuable. It's obviously quite speculative, but it is just so valuable to see um sites outside of your little client bubble or your big client bubble. <laughs> um, mm. it's really good to be able to see the the bigger industry and we are speculating at the end of the day so yeah you've just got to, i think 
not change like your mind too much too quickly but I think making changes within like a month or so to your strategy if if you notice something is a big issue then yeah 100% if it's drastic. With the uh, with the client that you mentioned there where you saw the changes with recipes how long yeah. did it take you to see those changes and what, like, were you sort of instantly sure that it had been affected or did it take a bit longer for that data to come through? So I don't, I still don't know exactly okay. what, so it looks like something happened on like the, and in the industry for recipes, it looked like for some of the big sites. So I've checked my client and I've checked some of the big sites like BBC Good Food and Delicious Magazine and things. Mm. And it looks like something happened on the 23rd of April, but then something also happened on the 7th again. Right. So it's like there's either a decrease or an increase on the 23rd of April and then there's a decrease or an increase on the 7th of May. Um, right. And that's obviously search metrics data. So it's like, yeah, it might be like a couple of days out maybe and it takes mm. weekly averages. But yeah, so that's how I noticed it. And I did just check it straight away. But same with Search Console, you don't get data on the day anyway. So there's no, no point refreshing on the day. Yeah. That's not a good <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not going to find what you're looking for no matter how many times you refresh yeah no matter how many times you search like organically for your client it's not going <laughs> to increase the racket not not a tactic we would recommend <laughs> spending your time on uh, ed what what were you going to say in response to that to that question so sort of how how long do you leave it and and what makes you sort of sure that a client has or hasn't been affected uh, yeah, so I think initially I always try and um, share the information of an algorithm update coming in as soon as it's announced within, you know, on social media or on the webmaster blog just to make sure that they're aware of it. Mm. Um, I think initially if there has been key terms that have dropped that you can see on the day, I think actually telling the client is the best way to go. Um, I think seeing seeming proactive is the correct approach i think mm -hmm. it's it's worse if they are able to see that there's been a significant drop off in terms of key terms and they're having to tell you about it i mean it's very likely they'll do it straight away uh, but yeah. later in the week it may they may flag it with you so i think initially highlighting it in terms of how to react to it i think this is when it becomes very important and i've seen a, a good tweet on this previously and um it was a seo where he highlighted that um, for their key term, uh, they dropped down, they were p positioned, I think, one or two. They dropped down to position 10 on the algorithm update day, so when it was announced. Yeah. They left it for a week or two, and actually it came back and went to position two. However, a mm. lot of SEOs, and I've been guilty in the past, is actually you react too soon. You made you make these like knee-jerk reactions. You start changing the page. You start optimizing it in a specific way. And actually, it could be that it was going to recover on its own, but the optimization efforts that you have made have actually led towards it staying down at position 10. So yeah. I think there is the case of, uh, exactly like Chloe said, waiting for data sources to update in terms of search metrics, using um, analytics on a week-by-week -week basis, using your rank check or anything like that. I'd wait to gather as many data sources as possible. I think within this time frame, it's it's safe to start planning actions that you may take um, in order to recorrect, but I certainly wouldn't go ahead with implementing anything for a, a week or two, because as we know, these algorithm updates, they, they launch on one day and then it will be a case of Google adjusting the levers towards what they're seeing. Um, yeah. It may be that things start to recorrect a week or two after the time. 
Um, so yeah, I think initially letting your clients know that there has been an increase or decrease, just seeming just as you're uh, presenting yourself as being proactive and you're aware of it. Um, I think if if, it, if you have seen a decrease, start beginning to look at you know why this may be. Start initially planning some items that you could um, yeah get on, on a roadmap to you know on a recovery basis. Uh, but I would certainly allow you know a week or two before actually uh, you know. Um, plan, you know, implementing these tests because, like yeah. I said, it, it may be that actually you start to re see recovery um, quite naturally anyway. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Nice one. Chloe, that's probably a good point to go into your uh, article as well then, which goes more into what you've been talking about specifically. Yeah, definitely. Um, so this is an article that um, I guess I kind of looked for on the day that I got the emails. I'm not sure if anyone else listening to this got a load of emails about the um, yeah guided recipes um, kind of notifications through Search Console. So yeah, these were released um, a few days ago now. What date did it say it is? I think, yeah, it was kind of on the 20th of May, um, the, the day before. So it's basically, um, this article just talks through, I guess, how we don't really know what it means still. <laughs> and, and maybe by the time this goes live, we will, I don't know. Um, but it's more, it's it's similar to when um, Google did the whole like product, I think it was the product missing scheme or something, and then everyone got notifications for that. And it's a similar thing, yeah. however, and it'd be, it'd be good to know what um, you two think of this as well. I do think this is a positive because it's the same with the, um, like, of Lang tag stuff. Like, that's still not been put into the new <laughs> Search Console. It's like, how accurate do we really think that data is? So surely if Search Console is rolling out new data and is looking at, I guess it's saying, okay, it's, it's telling you if your, if your recipes are suitable for rich results, yeah. then surely that is better than nothing. I think the biggest issue has been where it's for kind of, you know, like bloggers and sites like that. And mm. there's been a bit of like concern from them that they're just getting all these notifications um, mm. and it's just a bit concerning really. Um, but I do think like it's quite positive. Um, so they've introduced like new recommended like structured data attributes now um, okay. for recipes. Um, so um, yeah, so content URL in addition to thumb thumbnail URL and then embed URL for videos, which I think is only a positive and my inclination is that this is just swaying more towards the voice search side of things so now obviously yeah. there's a lot of um like tablets and things that you can connect to like, like google home and echo and things like that and recipes yeah. are really big there mm. um, so this is surely going towards all of that um as well um, but generally i've just noticed i think because this now I feel like there's more videos that have appeared um, in recently um, for recipes in the search results. And that's something, again, that I've seen from search metrics where it said there's more videos. So I do really feel like the search has changed in the past month for recipes. Um, yeah. And this is just quite an interesting, I guess it's more of a talking yeah. point than anything else um, to see. Do you think, what the, um, do you think the, uh, the changes this is based on a lot more recipe searches with everyone um, being yes. stuck at home 100%. at the moment. 100%. So the issue that I have with this is that as well, and recipes are actually quite hard. So you think like seasonal, 
obviously yeah. you think like okay yeah seasonal affects things like things that involve the weather like home and garden etc but actually like the weather affects what you eat so much and it's like daily mm, yeah. not only that but you've got things like easter so for yeah. my client that might have been affected maybe or has a lot of recipes on the site lamb they have loads of lamb recipes so over easter weekend <laughs> they had a massive increase in traffic and then it all of a sudden goes and then this um like happens <laughs> this yeah. kind of update comes out the algorithm update comes out so i think yeah definitely that when when we were talking before about like um, ben when you were running through your article yeah it's kind of like well how can we tie anything into an algorithm when the demand is changing so much like yeah. it's crazy like overnight obviously this week so this is um so obviously this week is is the week where the restrictions have been loosened a bit more as well so people can meet up with one other person etc all of a sudden some people are just searching like they're back living their normal lives now so the demand yeah. has changed again from what i can see from impressions on account so yeah i think demand's definitely changed but and i do believe that demand obviously changes rankings as well and we've I think we've all seen that to some extent during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's one of the most difficult things, not just with recipes, although it's absolutely affecting that industry probably more than a lot. But, you know, attributing any changes to a specific thing right now is really difficult anyway. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've had this yeah. where I've, I've had a client who's signed on in the last couple of months and I was on a call with them yesterday going through their sort of having a look at search console and going through some recent performance. And you sort of, it's so hard. You have to break down every single thing in such granular detail to even sort of hazard a guess why a change has happened. Mm -hmm. um, because you might have sort of traffic losses or spikes where rankings haven't changed. Um, or you might find particular areas where you're suddenly uh, they're suddenly parts of the site are doing a lot better or a lot worse than they were before. Uh, and, and, you know, even different pages on the site can be affected in completely different ways just because user behavior on all sorts of different products and services has just dramatically changed over the last couple of months. So for, for Google to release a broad core algorithm update during this time, which is normally it's, it make it quite difficult for SEOs to sort of understand exactly what's going on. It's just like a it feels yeah. a bit like a double whammy. Like how do you, how can you say with a, any degree of certainty for a lot of changes what's actually caused it at this stage? I think it's really hard. Yeah, hundred percent. And on that on that bombshell, <laughs> yeah. we'll move into. I mean, I, I was just going to say at least we err on the side of caution. Yeah. Um, at least we're not going ahead and saying this is why it happened. I think if you are able to doubt certain things or at least be aware that there's going to be a lot of, you know, factors in play, at least you're not, you know, attributing it towards one thing that may lead you on the wrong path. At least you are being aware of all data and using it as a, um, to understand why something may be happening. I think as long as you are, you know, quite open-minded and understand that, that like, as you mentioned, but there are factors in play, mm. you should have, you know, better access of identifying what's working rather than just kind of blindly following down a path that just yeah. isn't correct. I think a couple, a couple of quick tips from me as well that I know I've found helpful with clients in recent days. I suppose two main things, particularly when looking at Search Console, is look at average rank for particular terms and pages alongside changes in traffic. 
um, because you might see a drop in traffic or something and get quite worried. But then actually what I've found is that that often doesn't coincide with a loss in rankings. And actually you might be doing as well or, or even better than you were before in terms of your organic rankings for a particular page or keyword. Um, so th that's quite a good indication, I think, that the traffic loss is likely due to demand if assuming sort of all other things have remained more or less equal. Um, and also looking at branded traffic as an indication of sort of overall demand has been quite useful as well. Because uh, again, I've had a couple of clients who have suffered quite a bit throughout lockdown. Um, but what we can see there is their branded traffic has taken some of the biggest hits on the website. And that's a, a fairly clear indication that it's just people aren't looking for that kind of thing right now. Um, and that there's just a reduced sort of searching numbers overall. So again, you don't want to make those knee-jerk reactions and make massive on-page on changes when in reality, as soon as the situation changes again, that traffic is, is likely to come back. Yeah, cool. Definitely. Let's go to our main topics then, um, which are uh, going to give Chloe a chance to speak a bit more at length about some of the stuff that she's mentioned already that she's quite passionate about. Um, and I know that uh, Ed in particular as well is quite passionate about some of these as well, especially when we get onto e-commerce. So I think it's going to be a great opportunity to have a bit of a chat about some uh, some of the more complicated areas of SEO potentially um, and uh, hopefully some tips and tricks which are going to be quite useful for uh, a number of websites in lots of different industries. Um, so we'll get started with our, uh, our international segment which we have affectionately called Google Maps with Chloe. Um, <laughs> we like to name all of our sections. I enjoy that so much. We, we, we name all of our sections after different Google features. Um, and for international SEO, Google Maps really was the obvious choice. Um, we, we may keep this segment around for the future as well, uh, as it's quite a good opportunity to just e explore some considerations outside of the standard stuff that we see day in, day out in the UK. Uh, and as we've got Chloe on now, we thought it would be a great opportunity to get a bit of an overview of some different regions uh, and some more general principles of international SEO. Uh, so we hope that you know, no matter what your experience in SEO is, there's going to be some stuff in this section that you can take away. Um, so Chloe, we'll, we'll jump straight into to the meat of this, I suppose. Um, and we, we gathered some questions from our team. And one of the things that came up um, is just around sort of the, the main principles of international SEO, which is quite a good place to start. Um, so is there sort of a baseline of things that you look for, say when taking on a new site or when, when approaching international SEO for the first time with a client? Uh, what are the core things that you start looking for to assess the health of that site and how likely it is going to be able to rank in different territories? Yeah, so getting stuck in <laughs> straight, straight away. In <laughs> um, so the most important thing is understanding the maturity of that business and that industry in that market. So before you even look at um, a website and, you know, how great is the website from a technical point of view, how good is the content, how kind of good is the backlink profile, etc. You've got to think, well, this particular business, and this is where I think it's really important um, from like a client management perspective to understand what they're trying to achieve in that market. You're going to likely get the answer that they don't know sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is when then we go, you know, deep into the, the search results. But it's really important to know. So really kind of a common thing, for example, is um, 
I've done a did a project um for a client that's it's kind of more it's e-commerce but it, it was via an inquiry form because the product was at least 250 euros um yeah. or kind of 250 pounds 250 euros so in the uk that worked quite well um, and they actually added like a, an e-commerce button on there whereas for germany because of the nature of um conversions for products over i think around like 50 hundred pounds mm -hmm. it kind of requires an invoice which delays payment which means that we just didn't have any idea of their monthly revenue right. and this is a big challenge so when we're kind of saying oh how was your month they're like oh we had a really bad month well, actually, they had a really good month, but because invoices take, you know, a certain amount of time to be paid, it was delayed in that way. And that was kind of a really big consideration. I think it all comes down to tracking being so important and having data. And with international SEO, you need to understand that for each market. Um, so that's definitely the most important thing is knowing what is what has the client done already in that market and what are they trying to do and then doing a really good competitor industry analysis like that is the absolute like gold of anything um so i've done kind of competitor industry analysis which we still use like we did like a year ago and we update every few months and we still use Okay. And it's just really important to refer to it and to have like market comparisons in one document and to understand like competitors changing language variants and all that kind of stuff. Um, so having that those insights will then allow you to think, OK, well, actually, in the Netherlands, it's very, very focused on like informational content. The intent's a bit different. So we actually think, OK, well, this product isn't as mature in the Netherlands. People don't know yeah. about it. Whereas maybe in Germany, it's a really, really well-known product or the concept is really, really well-known. Um, so a really good example of that is energy. So, for example, solar was massive in kind of the UK and in Germany, but it wasn't as big in kind of other market territories. So that's where then it required more informational content, more informational content to be written. And you can see that in a lot of other markets, like in Italy, for example, there's still like it's not very mature like there's not a lot of like italian like, italian energy sites have a lot of information around solar energy it's not massive it's obviously there but when you compare it to germany and the uk it's so different and that's what's really really important is that you're not just thinking okay i want to rank for this keyword it's like okay well what what does this product and this concept look like to that particular market okay. um and then coming into the obviously the pandemic as well, like things have changed massively now, like some markets are back up and running again now. Um, yeah. So it's kind of thinking about that. I think, you know, being in the UK and obviously impression we are like we're all in the UK. Um, you can just be in like a little bubble, whereas you have to think bigger than that. Um, and that's really important. And even if you're not doing international SEO during this time or during any time when anything big is happening in the world you know whether that's a bank holiday or a political event just looking at where your traffic is coming from it might be you know if you've got a .com site you're getting traffic from all over and maybe you are getting a lot of like unintentional traffic from America making sure you understand what that traffic's doing so then if you do see a sudden drop it might be because of your performance in America for example and it's understanding that is really really important too
Yeah. There's there's a lot of good stuff in that. The thing that jumped out at me that would maybe be good to get a little bit more on was where you mentioned getting specific competitor insights across different regions. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that look like in terms of the data that you're actually getting from from those regions to give you a, a good idea of what search looks like there? So it starts with search volumes, I think, and before yeah. you get stuck into, um, you know, looking at competitors um, that your clients give you as well. Obviously, you need that. And especially if you're working with, you know, like a kind of a, a larger company that has like a branding team, they'll have all sorts of competitor documents and loads of competitors. But a kind of competitor that they see might not be a SERPs competitor, as sure. we know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely looking at search volumes and then getting that aggregated data. So looking at it. So. The one other thing as well that's really important to consider is EN searches in different markets too. So looking yeah. at looking at the um, obviously the native language. So looking at like DEDE, so German Germany, but also looking at um, you know like DEN, making sure you are looking at that um, as well to make sure you know. Okay, well there are people searching in in English in Germany, and then understanding the demand in that market. Mm. Having that data will allow you to know as well like how important your, obviously your English site's important, but how likely it is to kind of dominate. Um, So if you do have a .com site and your .com site is your core, maybe your like, you know, HQ historic legacy site that is changed before anything else and, you know, every stakeholder in the business really cares about, that site is probably going to have the most like legacy the most authority so it's really important to understand how that's performing in other markets as well and then if you do have for example the netherlands is a prime example of this um in the netherlands you search in dutch and you get a lot of english results and so many nl so netherlands sites have Mm. english pages only and it's really crazy so actually a dot-com site in the netherlands might perform better um, if it has better authority but then the other argument is well you know are search engines looking for .nl or is a user not going to trust it if it doesn't have .nl and it's all of these considerations as well which are are really massive so yeah that's kind of the most important thing is to consider the, the languages and things. Where where English is used as a language in other territories, say like the Netherlands or or somewhere else, um, but it's not not the sole language there. Like maybe there's um, say Dutch and English. Um, mm-hmm. Is is it ever sort of correct to sort of use both languages on a website, or do you have to make a hard decision and say our .nl website is only going to be Dutch and the .com is going to rank for the English terms? Like how do you how do you get that balance? So th- this is a big question. This is something like, to be honest, that I'm still really like reading into and trying to okay. figure out. And I think it's very trial and error. It's not trial and error, but reading, <laughs> other, reading other people's trial and error. Yeah. Um, so in terms of best practice, um, you need, obviously, you need the correct um, tags in place. So the language region tags. So I've recently seen um, for a client that I helped an audit for um, that they had um, every European country and then they had just a dot, so they had dot EU and they yeah. had every European country and then they had like um, F-R-E-N, I-T-E-N. So they had, and then it was just referring to the EU domain. 
So right. they had no other versions, basically. They had yeah. America, UK, and EU. So they had no .fr, but then they just had on their homepage, on every page on their site, they had like incorrect AHRF Lang tag, tag implementation because they just had the um, homepage being referenced. But they also just put like the EN on the end, like ENFR. It was just a yeah. little bit bizarre. But then I looked at all the other <laughs> sites in this industry and they all did it. So I think they will, I'm, I'm sure they've all copied each other because <laughs> they do not rank in that country because they have an EU site. So if you've got a .eu site, mm. that should be, in my opinion, your default site. So for international SEO, you have obviously maybe a GBEN site, a USEN site, and then you can have an ex-default site. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really, really important um, to have. So then for someone searching in English in a non-UK or US market, they can then, your site will appear. So, you know, if I move to Germany and I'm searching in English, I should get your English EU site. Yeah. And that's really, really important to make sure that you, you are getting that. But in terms of, was your, your question was around like having... An English version. Yeah, or like yeah. Or even mixing the languages on, say, .nl or something. Yeah, so mixing the languages is, I think, is something that definitely isn't advised, but then mm -hmm. at the same time, and, you know, if we're talking about best practice only, if you've got an, you know, Lang implementation that says this site is NLNL, then you yeah. should have NLNL content because you're sending signals to a search engine which says, I want to attract users searching in Dutch in the Netherlands. Yeah. Whereas you then should be changing the signals um, if you know if not, um, if you want to have like ENNL. The only issue is, is if you did have then an NLEN version, then yeah. you know, this is such a mouthful saying. <laughs> I think I'm thinking that. <laughs> It's literally like NLE. <laughs> if you have, yeah. So if you have like NLEN, but then you're also going to have a .com version. So what really is the purpose of your NLEN version? That's where yeah. the issues come into play. Because likely, and this is just from my experience, your English sites often, or the site companies I've worked with, even if they originally had a French or a Danish site, their English site has the most, their .com site has the most authority. So you're basically creating a translation or, you know, an NLEN version just for the sake of it when you've got a perfectly fine .com site. And that yeah. comes down to the argument where you should never just translate content unless it's just for the user. So you can get plugins that translate it. Like you can, mm -hmm. if I'm on an NL site, I can, you know, Google translate the content if I want to that's not going to be indexed. That's okay. It's not great for the user. But then if you're going to then go to the effort of making sure that your French, Italian, German, Dutch site all have an English translation, you're going to run into issues. Right. Yeah. And I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> I think with international SEO and someone who is maybe new to the um seo industry i think it's is one of the most difficult areas to learn because there's no set method for it and no. there's so much considerations when working with a company it's not the case that um 
one solution is the best way forward for that because i think as an seo i always um if i'm working with a website and they always say what's your perfect scenario i will always say subdirectory and going down that approach whereas you know there's going to be companies that do have uh branding side of things where actually uh country code top level domains you know are more effective for them because they're from a branding perspective and also it allows um you know users to prefer maybe to browse more locally within that country as well so it's so difficult because it's like a it, there's going to be a lot of like in company politics in place and also site structure maybe that actually that site can only expand from a subdomain which is traditionally quite hard to work well, a weaker signal for search engines so i think yeah. it can be very tricky for someone new to the seo industry because you really have to understand the company's a company how are they are set up internally as well and how they are set up yeah from an international perspective um and also i think i don't think google do a great job of um highlighting the signals that your website is portraying um in terms of href lang and everything like that i think from an enterprise perspective it's going to Search Console is pretty redundant in terms of analyzing the way that your international um, architecture is set up. And actually, you have to rely heavily on the use of crawling tools, which I imagine you're doing um, to a point anyway. But I think that's mm-hmm. one area of Search Console that they could greatly improve upon. I think that's something that you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier in this episode is that actually, I think Search Console should instead of like if going ahead with certain areas, I think they should really improve the international side of things um in terms of the data that they present yeah definitely and because it's still the it's like takes you to the old search console that absolute throwback so it is it's still like yeah it's pretty i guess it's pretty archaic and it kind of feels like it's not been developed but then that almost says to me yeah like there's other tools we can use anyway and also Mm. it's just so important to look at the site from a user perspective in that yeah. way anyway like obviously technical seo is crucial to rank well but i do think if i was doing the snog maria void for international <laughs> i would yeah. probably, i would probably snog technical because yeah. like <laughs> because content or even i just wouldn't even bother with the other two i'd just marry content because it's so like it's so important to have that content that's relevant to your market um mm. i think yeah. like what you were saying Ed, about like the sub folder approach I think that is in my opinion the only option for like a a kind of new market entry so like if it's like you've got an English domain or whatever that because you're just spitting equity if not however if you're doing a brand new launch and it's like you know maybe with energy for example or I'm thinking of something that's like or you know law or like a a kind of solicitor firm whatever maybe it would be better to have then like the um country code top level domain approach Mm. then yeah so you've got like, I think, yeah i think it's just a case that so many factors come into play because i think is it amazon that used the um cc i mean obviously everyone's aware of amazon yeah. but probably a bad example but there will be a case where they want to be appear more locally and more brand heavy on that you know dot fr dot es and things like yeah. that so like you say i would 100 percent go with subdirectory for yeah i think as you put it, as a new market entry, it seems the sensible approach because you're able to consolidate all that authority. And I think it's easier to maintain from uh, a structural point of view. But like, I think there's just when when you're working with a company on an international expansion, there's just so many things you have to go through. Like mm-hmm. if you 
it's that process of briefing in, it in and then seeing if it's possible from the whole company, basically. Yeah, 100%. I've got... Um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Claire, if you want to carry on. No, I was just going to say, I think, um, I mean, if you think to Amazon, for example, like so many times where I've searched for Amazon in a product and I've got the American site, like mm. it's thinking things like that as well. Like there's thinking of the approach in that way and the biggest sites have yeah. those issues, like they have those issues all the time, but it's kind of like they've already got the trust there. I know, yeah. like if my parents landed on a site and only saw you know dollars or euros they would be out of there and they would never go back so it's like thinking of it in trust is so important and just having a front even if you've got a you know a, if you've got a dot-com site that is predominantly america having a good face that then allows your user to navigate to the market specific like um domains or kind of areas is so important to not deter the user because bounce rate is seen it with currency like even so in Germany you put like the euro after the price and yeah. that can affect if you don't change that like if you put the pound on the other side which happens in in bad translations it's literally will affect your conversion rate so badly so yeah that's really important to consider the trust of of like your currency and things I think yeah. Have you ever have you guys ever done a search for like a Netflix title that you can't be bothered to go to Netflix, or you do a yeah. search and actually it ranks well, but actually it's because it's available on a certain country that's not yeah. available yeah. in the UK. Yeah. And it ranks number, and you get really annoyed because that title's not available. I think that just shows you it's very similar to what you, Chloe, mentioned with the authority side of things. It's clearly in the authority the view URL, and it's bringing up and it's peering top in a UK market, but it's not available there. Yeah, but it doesn't that doesn't that question like Google's intelligence though? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like why is it showing me that if I can't even go on it? Like I've been in the UK like all my life. Like why aren't you <laughs> showing me the right result? <laughs> so yeah. I've got it probably ties on some of the intelligence and quality stuff. One of the questions mm -hmm. we had um from our team was around um, automated translation to actually generate the content for other sites. So say we, we know we definitely want some French content or some German content. Is automated translation ever an option or is it just too bad? Like, do you have to use human translators? Um, so with a translation agency, yes, it is an option, but not without a human. So right. it depends, like I said, as I just mentioned, are you trying to just translate your content? so that a robot can understand it. So someone that doesn't really care about the quality, mm. for example, probably not because we all care about users and Google cares about users more than ever. Yeah. So in that way, um, automated translations just aren't feasible um, and you shouldn't as well just translate a keyword list. However, mm. translating a keyword list, so from English into whatever language into French, is a good place to start because it will be like an ideation, but it should always be mm. done with someone with like I would say you know we at impression always make sure it's like native or bilingual proficiency anyway because you've got those considerations you understand the language a bit more and even when you go really technical like I'm sure the three of us can agree like for some of our clients working with them a year you know so much more and you know so much more language and so many more terms and things that are relevant than like a year ago so imagine yeah. trying to learn that in another language when you're not native it's just crazy yeah. um 
But the one thing that, so the translation agencies that I've worked with is the ones that um, obviously work consistently with clients um, and have kind of a, a good consistent um, portfolio of clients. They will have an automated tool where they, every time they do a translation, it will feed into the tool and then it will remember the terms it uses. So prime yeah. example of that would be like, you know, if there's two ways of saying, um, I'm trying to think of an example. I know. So, for example, like barbecue and grill. So if you've got barbecue and grill, well, maybe on an American site, I'm going to want to always say grill. Yeah. And maybe the German translation will be grill. But maybe the French translation is barbecue and not grill. So then it feeds into that tool. So it can then generate a translation, but it has to be gone through by a human. So yeah. it's not an automated translation as such, but you are using automation. It speeds it up a bit without doing the whole thing. It makes it cheaper, basically. Yeah. It makes it less time consuming, <laughs> which yeah. is obviously everyone. It's good because they do it quicker, you pay less, and then you know the term the client has less feedback on the same terms again. Um so yeah, automate automated translation isn't realistic. But I think the one thing that is really realistic is just making sure you have a solid EN site. Like mm it's got to be a good version of your site. And that's where the challenges come. So, okay, I've got a UK site, I've got a US site, but what about my, you know, FREN site and things like that? I need a good English site that's going to appeal to my English-speaking French users, but we'll use yeah. it in France, for example. And, yeah, so avoid automated translation and avoid just translating anything, really. Awesome. I mean, that's that's probably quite a good takeaway for um, for listeners if they are kind of toying with the idea of English sites or different language sites. So mm -hmm. that's awesome. Um, I think before we before we move on to sort of e-commerce, um, I know one of the things you wanted to do, Chloe, which I think is also going to be really useful, is to just touch on um, a couple of specific markets that you've had some experience in um, and just mm -hmm. offer some pointers for those on, on sort of the biggest highlights of things that you've learned in your time working on those. Yeah, 100%. Um, yes, yeah, so the biggest one really is desktop and mobile and how that changes by um, specific markets and continents as well. Um, and I'll put this, so in the blog write-up that this podcast is on, I'll put it in the bottom, yeah. um, just some stats, which is from Stat Counter, so it's not my own, but it's just really, and anyone that is even looking at other markets use stat counter it's literally so invaluable you can get search market share desktop mobile tablet share and the worldwide average is a mobile 53 percent and desktop 43 percent whereas yeah. for africa asia it's 62 percent mobile so it's yeah. a lot higher towards mobile whereas for europe and for north america and south america it's 50 percent desktop um yeah. So, yeah, so your, the biggest takeaway there is Europe is more desktop, basically, a lot more desktop. Okay. And that's just really, really interesting. Um, and one thing that I've noticed as well is countries like Denmark and Sweden um, are just so more weighted towards desktop. And this is, it, it really does depend on, I guess, the intent in search. But a lot of the time as well, it can be when you're looking at EN searches in these countries because there's a lot of, like, business search and b2b mm. search and you'll find that volumes are there for a lot higher um so that's a, a kind of one one biggest thing so again it comes back to like the 
the core, I guess, and one of the core practices is like think about mobile, but also don't forget about desktop. <laughs> kind of like we obviously all work on our desktops, but I'm still not convinced that like enough SEOs actually check sites on mobile enough. But it's so important, yeah. like in so I just have a look at this one here. Yeah, so in China, 59% mobile. So 59% that's so high like really yeah. really high like to think that almost 60 percent of users are searching on mobile um so yeah that's kind of a really really big takeaway cool. and then in terms of like other i guess market specific considerations so i've already mentioned germany um a little bit and that's a market that i'm i guess a specialist of particularly outside of English speaking market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, there's been the issues that I've you know faced and things I've come across is just considering different laws, for example. Yeah. <laughs> um, considering like USPs, um, things like delivery, all that type of stuff is just really important. Um, consumer consideration. So again, the maturity of a consumer and also the age of a consumer. So just because a product in the UK, you know, just because um, 16 to 25 year olds are buying like nintendo ds's in the uk it mm. doesn't mean that in germany that's the same okay and that's often different because it's just maturity of games so another example and something that i noticed a few months ago it's probably still the same there's a much higher search like high search volume for dvds in germany okay like things like that that we just wouldn't like you wouldn't think of, but it's just considering different markets. And I'm not saying anything, you know, I'm not saying, okay, well, you know, Germans all watch DVDs in any way, but there's obviously some difference in volume there. Like where's that coming yeah. from? And same, Ed, you mentioned Netflix. Like, I mean, yeah. obviously not now, but when I lived in Germany, like five, six years ago, I was one, no, none of my German friends were really using Netflix. <laughs> like no one had really even yeah. properly used, like heard of it that much. Like, and I was using that and it's like, well now obviously Netflix is massive and it's understanding. I mean, I'd love to know like their international strategy. I know we've chatted about it quite a lot of impression with different things. It's quite interesting, but um, it's just thinking about the maturity of the, the user and the consumer in a different market, I guess. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I was just going to mention in terms of very similar to what uh, Chloe mentioned is I went to a kind of a UX conference a few years ago, and this was an e-commerce store, um, international store where they looked at the Europe European broadband speed by different countries, uh, and then they identified specific countries with a slower broadband speed that was quite drastic in terms of how slow it was, and uh, looked to supply less. Uh, intensive resources such as video on their homepage and things like that. So I thought that was quite interesting. And I think I think this kind of connects to the whole conversation is that um, you, it's not a case of one uh, size fits all. You need to have these considerations for international countries, understand what's important to them. I mean, you don't want to generalize too much, but there will be certain factors that you can play towards. Like I said, I think that broadband speed is quite interesting. Things such as like... Um, yeah, all the stuff that's been Chloe's been going over to there, I think, is um, mm -hmm. is to kind of have a holistic approach to all different types of countries and worthwhile, you know, focus on the benefits of certain countries that you can really play to. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and that obviously that's like a 
comes down to understanding the market as well but then understanding your competitors in that market and like even just from a visual point of view like for example Australian sites are quite well known for not looking as UX friendly as uh, you know, a US or a UK site, for example. Yeah. Um, and then you look at like, you know, even you just search for, for SEO agencies or PPC agencies in Australia and there's not as many. Like it's because it's like just a less of a maturity. And that's what's really important to understand, okay, well, how are they then reaching their reaching their customers? And then there's a reason why so many businesses are trying to enter the German market because it is so mature and it is just, you know, obviously from an economic perspective. So yeah, those considerations are all really important. Yeah. Excellent. I think for the sake of time, we'll have to leave international SEO there. Although I know there's plenty, plenty more that could be yeah. discussed. Um, and I think we'll, we'll have to make the e-commerce round slightly, uh, slightly quick fire, quick fire e-commerce round. Sounds like a quiz. Um, <laughs> If you guys are up for that, I know you could both talk about e-commerce um, probably enough to fill an entire episode on its own. So if we don't get everything <laughs> today, we can definitely have you back on to talk about e-commerce and do it a bit more justice than we might be able to do here, Chloe. Um, we'll rein it in, don't worry. We'll, I, that remains to be seen. I, I'm not sure if the two of you can rein in your excitement about e-commerce. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'll give it a go. It's, uh, it's good to have some enthusiasm for topics like this. <laughs> um, so we've got a few questions here, um, and I think they'll do quite a good job of covering um, a few different sort of e different e-commerce topics. Um, so if we if we again jump straight in with some sort of top level. Uh, a top top down view of e-commerce um what are some of the biggest challenges uh facing seos working on e-commerce sites uh, particularly larger e-commerce sites uh you can sort of take that in whatever direction you want but it'd be good to kind of get what first jumps to mind for both of you hmm. um i think we you touched upon it earlier ben um a big one is attribution uh, understanding where you're like the journey of your user and what channel is the, is the most I guess beneficial in that way I think that's a big challenge but if we're talking okay. about I guess SEO more SEO focused I'd say um at index flow is probably a big one and just especially with um sites like Magento like query filter pages creeping mm. in I've worked with Ed on yeah. a fair few or Ed's kind of fixed my site yeah. client issues with this and it's just you think you've solved it and then something else crops up um, or the biggest challenge would probably be then from that a, a site migration I guess is probably the biggest challenge yeah mm. yeah I think yeah they're key points I think um, the indexing and crawling uh, especially around category pages and URLs that can you can have issues with I think also not to blog, well, I am actually going to plug my own blog post. I think pagination <laughs> is a, still a big uh, issue with it. I think in, from doing initial research to posting that blog post, I think I saw a lot of um, major e-commerce sites within the UK still having pagination that isn't search friendly. So I think that's a key area. I also think um, out-of-stock products is... Um, an issue still with kind of uh, mm -hmm. major websites and that's because I think again it's kind of similar to what we we're touching upon with um, 
international SEO is that there's no one size fits all. There's a, a consideration in terms of how the business actually handles out of stock products itself. So um, I think that's kind of a, a challenge. Um, but yeah, I think there are a few big ones that I seem to come across mm -hmm. so on a month to month basis. I think with, with out of stock products, that's quite an interesting one um, that I know we've had come up in, in impression a fair few times. Um, I know it, it is different and it does depend on, on factors such as whether the product's going to come back or whether it's been discontinued completely or, or what that kind of situation is. Um, but, but are there any best practices in terms of what to do with those pages when, when a product is out of stock? Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing is understanding what value it currently had on your website. I mean, it would be a hard it, it, it would be hard to do this. Say, for example, if you have products going out of stock every week or every month, because it would be hard to have quite a granular approach to it. But I mm. think the biggest thing is understanding uh, what authority or and search volume that product currently had. Um, so maybe that, that pro product actually had quite a few links to it from like forums or anything like that, or it may have been uh, linked to from a few product guides across the web. Um, it may be ranking for a lot of high search volumes. Um, and well, sorry, yeah, it may be ranking for high for uh, a particular term that had high search volume. Um, and it may be that that's an older product now, whereas there's a newer version to it. So I I think to understand the current value that that the product currently has on your website or products that, uh, yeah, the current value they currently, they, that they currently have onto your website. Mm. Um, and then if it's the case that it does have value, I think the best place is to have that transition process. Um, I think John Lewis is probably one of the best websites that do this, that say, for example, uh, they have a laptop that they no longer stock, but they have a newer version of it. They'll introduce a module that says this product, we no longer stock this product, but these are the new laptops that are similar to it, or this is the new brand for it. And they present mm. that quite well. So that's mm -hmm. an option. Um, so I think that would be the best case of looking to facilitate um, traffic that is out there. But I think it's also, you. People have issues, and I saw a funny tweet around this, um, and I think it was from an influencer saying, why do e-commerce websites keep out-of-stock product pages live on the website? And then someone quoted it saying, every SEO or something like that, and it made me laugh. <laughs> but I think from a user perspective, it's nothing's more frustrating than if you go into a search result and you click on it and it actually mm -hmm. redirects to an overall category because you're thinking, well, where has it gone? I actually want to be presented yeah. with the thing. So I think if you're keeping out-of-stock products uh, live on a website will help consolidate authority, but then making sure to either let the user know that it may come back in stock or present a newer version um, towards it. I think that's the most sensible approach. There will be questions of how how can how long can you keep that up because you don't want to keep growing expanding your website. So I think maybe after a year or two, you'd expect search demand for that product to go down because people are going to be searching less and less for that specific model because it's become more, you know, less advertised, I guess. Mm. Um, but I also think that there should be considerations that you need to take uh, part. So making sure that the, the product doesn't display within your category pages, make sure that it's not being pulled through on shopping feeds uh, and things like that. So again, I know I've rattled on quite a few mm. there, but I think it's important to make sure that you keep the authority and website and present yeah. to a, a newer version to the user is ultimately the mm -hmm. my, yeah, overall take on it.
Yeah, I completely agree. I think as well, it comes back to that collaborative conversation with the client to understand their stock levels and how it's changing. Mm. If it's the fact that every week they're running out of stock, then, yeah. you know, I'm not saying they shouldn't be investing in digital, but there's yeah. probably a conversation to be had there if it is going out of stock straight away um, and that's probably shows then you know an investment to really update those pages or if it is just that every six months they have a turnover of stock you know like with the I guess the laptop example they have a new more new laptop or whatever yeah. then okay maybe that's something else to think about um different approach but I've had it before where um I've seen this as an issue. I've audited sites where they've had like, you know, different sizes. So maybe they've got weights like kettlebells and then they've got mm. one page for their six kg kettlebell all the way up to like 50 kg or whatever. Or actually you could just put them together and just have, you know, an actual proper product page with the different sizes on. And I think sometimes if you do have a lot of similar products which are going out in and out of stock, then having a drop down is, is really important. It's like now, obviously, I mean, I'm sure you've both had it when you've gone to online shop during the pandemic and then it's like out of stock and it's the most frustrating thing yeah but at least yeah. like I mean the worst thing that I find is when you click on it and then it's got like 10 sizes only one of them's in like for weights only one of them's in stock but then yeah. if you've got like similar products or back in stock on I think that's really important um having some further information as to when the stock is coming back like Ed said it's annoying if you're redirected to a category page because I would just think oh an SEO's done that mm, yeah <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't think oh they care about me it's like oh they care about the <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, as as someone who buys the most generic men's clothing size with a large for all of my tops, which is almost always the size that's going to be out of stock, it, mm -hmm. I, I know exactly what you mean. When it, yeah. I, I think having the aggregated product is better for SEO overall because it means you're more likely to be able to show some stock and kind of keep the, mm -hmm. keep the page live, but it doesn't avoid frustration fully. I can confirm that. Yeah. <laughs> But it all comes down to demand though I think it is I'm not saying that like obviously as SEOs we should try and be marketing managers but you need to understand what is going on like with yeah, your yeah. client and why they're running out of stock so often and actually know why because it's just there's no point just saying okay you've got a thousand out of stock products let's do this um mm. and yeah we've all been there and like made rash decisions and learned from them so it is just <laughs> it's just definitely like um yeah, figuring out the best strategy for the client. Yeah. And again, like I suppose it's one of those things where caution is if you're not 100% sure, like the, the more cautious route is probably the way to go for now, especially if the site's not, doesn't seem to be sort of actively harmed at the moment. Yeah. Um, cool. I said this would be a quick, a quick fire e-commerce round and we're not doing very well so far. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it moving. Um, let's do quick fire e-commerce CMS. Um, so there, there are obviously a few out there, some some dedicated e-commerce CMSs and some that can be adapted. Um, have you had any sort of particular positive or negative experiences with any of them? Uh, and, and do you have any tips for some of the uh, the more common ones or, or things to look out for on the more common ones like Magento, for example? Um, I'm having some issues recently with the blog side of things with Magento, um, just with blog plugins. I think this is the biggest challenge for Magento sites. Well, what not the biggest challenge, one of the common mm. challenges. 
that I've come across. Um, so yeah, just making sure that like, um, if your client does actually want to invest in a blog, um, they, um, yeah, that they actually like are investing in it and that it yeah. looks okay. Um, and also when auditing your like client site, I've had it a few times quite recently where the clients didn't even know they've got a blog. Um, <laughs> as well because it's like an old old blog on like a subdomain and um, yeah. so yeah i think plugins um i'm going to try a, a plugin um kind of for a client next week and i'm going to maybe write a blog about plugins for magento because i think yeah. that's a, definitely a good talking point i don't know if you've got any more insights on that ed i was just going to say with e-commerce as cms i think if anyone as an seo if you're looking to provide recommendations towards a client on a cms for e-commerce i think it's always important to say like there are i mean shopify are great examples for and really easy to use in terms of C cms setup and you can get a really nice looking website and really functional point of view but if you're thinking of scaling towards the long term it may be best to think of the bigger picture i think from a shopify perspective and this is me speaking from a uh, i guess technical seo point of view is you are quite limited in terms of what how you can structure the website um, and if you're going to, it may be that you have that website set up and then two, three years down the line as your product scale and the website gets bigger, you may face a few headaches and you may have wished to, have, you know, look towards a Magento build um, in the short, well, earlier on. So I think it's just having an understanding that sometimes it's better to go big in the early days um, in terms of, you know, it's just increasing your budget to get a more long term and successful CMS. Not to say that Shopify isn't successful. I think there's a lot of good websites that perform well on Shopify, but there are limitations on, from it from a technical standpoint. Is there a point where Magento particularly excels? Like, I don't know if you can put an actual number on it in terms of products or something, but like, or where Shopify starts to struggle? I think, with, in my opinion, Shopify struggles from the structural point of view and also some seo limitations it has the basics in place in terms of targeting and everything like that but from a strict uh, yeah a structural point of view it can become quite a bit of a nightmare i think magento becomes its best now in my opinion is when it becomes uh, as acts as kind of like a headless cms and you can connect it to things such as um uh, like Gatsby as a javascript framework and that really works quite well so it becomes a lot quicker um but yeah, um, like I said, I think Magento is pretty solid. Like I said, I, I think there are all like Shop, uh, WooCommerce, Shopify are great considerations. It's just a case of understanding um, where you think your website's going to be in the next five years and planning towards that. I think as well, like um, Magento's stock configuration is a little bit better than Shopify from what I've heard. So obviously a big thing is if clients have one warehouse that ships to their like you know brick and mortar stores and also their like online customers then having that stock configuration is so important and that's something mm. as well that yeah i think magento and um, beat shopify on from what i've heard yeah. okay awesome and one other the one that's just been put in the notes which is worth mentioning because i know it's slightly different is um you put Drupal down here, Chloe. Have you have you had much experience with that as an e-commerce CMS? Yeah, so that was my like first experience. That was like my SEO birth. <laughs> That's an interesting way of putting it. <laughs> on Drupal, um, in in German, on Drupal. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> but yeah, so no, I think the thing with Drupal is just. Um, 
I know it, it is quite challenging, but I think it's, I mean, I don't know if, if Ed's done much with Drupal, but I do think from a JavaScript perspective, it has had the most challenges. It's probably the least advanced um, in that way. And it's kind of had issues. Um, I know a lot, most Drupal sites have rendering issues, for example, um, but it is quite good from an international perspective. Um, but then also like WordPress and WooCommerce for international e-commerce as well are pretty, pretty solid because you can just have like there's really good like um, plugins you can add in like translation plugins not to translate it but so you can put in the translations for all of the different languages which is really good okay as a final question on that then if you could pick one cms to work on for e-commerce seo which would it be oh if you could just say all of my e-commerce clients are going to be on this cms I would say Magento. I'd say Magento, yeah, Magento. It's like a love-hate relationship. <laughs> it depends on the um, it depends on the developers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, it does depend. It does heavily depend on loads of other factors, but yeah, I think if everything else was perfect, like amazing developers, um, everything else is amazing. Yeah, I'd go with Magento. And okay. that unlimited budgets as well. Because I think the thing with Magento <laughs> is like you can just like keep adding to the site. It's like not going to be a cheap build. But I, you know, WooCommerce does the job um, right. as well for like smaller sites. And I think for, you know, that's definitely from an SEO perspective, we're all quite comfortable on WooCommerce. Yeah. I mean, I, I've definitely been working on clients where they have sort of increased their e commerce functionality or like really sort of where they maybe have more of a lead gen site before and then gone into e-commerce and uh, WooCommerce has been has been really good, you know, where they've already had a WordPress site, especially. Um, it is a good solution for a lot of businesses in that sort of position or, or whether e-commerce maybe isn't as as big an offering as, as some that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Cool, so we, we'll, we'll leave it there then, I think. Um, we, we've had a very sort of quick a uh, quick skim of e-commerce and some some challenges and things to watch out for and some CMSs. Hopefully there's stuff you found useful there, um, especially if you're looking at potentially a new e-commerce build or kind of in investing in SEO for the first time uh, in, in an e-commerce website. I think there's a few sort of tips and tricks there which are going to come in useful. Um, and that will that will do it for this episode, I think. Uh, I, I don't know how long we've gone so far, but it felt like we we packed a lot into that one. Um, so hopefully, um, sort of as you've been listening, there's been all sorts of different uh, tips and tricks that you've picked up and, and stuff you've found interesting. Um, I know for me, these are topics where I feel like I can learn a lot more. Uh, and I feel like I have learned a lot on this call. So uh, thank you both for sharing your wisdom. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, I feel like I just word vomited a bit, but I, I can assure you it was all it was all really useful stuff. It was it was word vomit of pure SEO knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> so as a last as a final question for you chloe um how can people find you on social media do you have any um existing or upcoming resources or articles or anything like that that you want to mention now um so yeah my twitter handle which we'll put in this blog as well i guess and um, it's just coast yep. underscore um so yeah that's my twitter handle um and i'm working on a couple of exciting things at the minute so i'm working on kind of a joint webinar um hopefully with one of our tools um to kind of do that in the coming months um around like international seo um, and then also i'm looking at yeah a blog post around kind of e-commerce site architecture so i don't have any blogs <laughs> to plug because i've been too 
busy trying to do the international offering, but <laughs> in the coming months we'll be there. But it's all all positive. <laughs> a lot of good stuff to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And people should go and follow you on Twitter to see when these things come out. Yeah, and if, if I mean if people have made it this far and are listening, then feel free to like ask me in a month where my blog is because <laughs> I'll need a gentle reminder. <laughs> keep you accountable yeah. that's the good thing about putting things out like on the internet like this Ed I know you've you've had a couple of blogs go live recently I know you mentioned the pagination one do you just want to um, point people in their direction as well before we finish yeah so um, hopefully you can just find it on the impression blog that's the pagination in 2020 I also have a blog coming going live in the next few days so again this will be a, a promise that I've made so hopefully it will be live by the time the podcast airs but yeah this uh, this will be on an internal linking analysis using internal page rank and click there so that's hopefully going live in the next few days so yeah it should be live hopefully when this podcast goes live Awesome. And I've got one more potential promise to make as I might have an e-commerce content blog going live as well. So we shall see um, if, if all of these are out by the time you hear this episode. See if we're liars or not. Yeah. <laughs> Don't say it like that, Chloe. That makes it sound serious. <laughs> Uh, that, that that is all for this month's rank up podcast episode i think we'll leave it there before we make any more promises um <laughs> we, we will be back uh next month with more on-page seo topics and debate uh, and in the meantime we would really appreciate it uh if you could leave a review on the podcast app of your choice um wh wherever you found us uh that would be really helpful um or come and say hi to us on twitter as well if you've enjoyed the episodes um, I am at Ben J. Gary with two R's and Ed is at Ed JTW with two D's um, and we'd be more than happy to uh, answer any questions or hear any feedback about the episodes. Um, all of that helps us get this off the ground um, and make sure that we're offering the best content possible through this podcast medium uh, that we are getting to grips with. Um, and if you can't wait a whole month for your next helping of digital marketing content, uh, then please do go and check out Jess Hawkes' uh, digital PR podcast, Outspeech, uh, which is kind of a, um, a sibling podcast to this one, which um, discusses all of the sort of off-page topics uh, that we don't get to in this on-page podcast. Uh, and we also have the Impression blog, of course, over at impression.co.uk, which is updated regularly with things from uh, all different members of our teams, not just SEO, but digital PR, PPC, uh, and other general marketing insights as well. Um, Chloe and Ed, thank you so much for your time again this month. Uh, and Ed and I will be back in July with your next installment of On Page Conversation. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Chloe. Thanks, Bye. 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 Thank you.